All right, we are in a study of the book of John, and I want to read to you uh, a part of the end of John chapter 7, and then John chapter, uh, the beginning of John chapter 8. Now, if you remember what's going on, let me just set the stage. Jesus came to the temple. He taught. He declared to them this, that he brings the water of life. And remember, we talked about two different kinds of life that are talked about in the Bible, bios and zoe. Bios is physical life. It's eating and drinking and breathing and moving and existing. Bios is existing. Zoe is a word that means life that has meaning, that's at a different level. It has this meaning. It has purpose. It gives a person a reason to exist. And Jesus came to bring eternal Zoe. That is this life with a reason to exist, this life full of meaning that lasts into eternity and continues in eternity. So this is very important, this distinction. We only have one word for life, but in the Greek they separate that. They want, to, want us to see the difference there. They want us to see how important that is. So he's been talking about that. He's been talking about this living water that he brings to people. And uh, the leaders of, of, the, of the Jews are just totally, they're so upset with him And they send some men to arrest him, and we pick up right there. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And each went to his own home. So what's happened? They sent the guards to arrest him and the guards said, This this man, no one talks like this man. This is unbelievable. The way he teaches, we can't, it's just incredible. And so then they, they're very dismissive and condemning of those guards, you know. Oh, if you believe, none of us have. None of us have. Can you, now if you can remember, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus went to Jesus and he said, we know you're from God. At least I do. I know you're from God because no one could do what you do. No one can teach like you teach. And Jesus says, you must be born again. He, have that, he has that discussion with him concerning salvation. Right, So now the Pharisees and the chief priests are like, you think any of us believe in that, that guy? And I can imagine Nicodemus going, oh, shoot. You know, trying to figure out where do I fit in. He's, he's uh, peer pressure. He's dealing with this incredible amount of peer pressure. And so he kind of raises a technical, a technical objection. He says, doesn't our law say we've got to listen to him? We've got to sit with him and let him explain what he believes. And he, so he brings up a technicality. I think he's trying to forestall this idea that they might just go and kill Jesus right then because he still hasn't quite figured out how Jesus is, Jesus is totally in charge of this whole deal, right? And so then we go to John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Again, he appeared again. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were asking this question as a trap. 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the, on the ground with his finger. When they were kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right. Now, possibly many of you have noticed there is uh, something different about in your, in your Bible or maybe even on your, about John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Some, some it's italicized, some it's bracketed to show that there's something special here going on that they want you to understand. And I want to just talk about that for a short moment. If you want more information on this, I'd be happy to talk to you later. But here's the deal. In the last 50 years... 60 years, the amount of discovery of biblical times has exploded. It, it, it just no other age compares with what we've learned about the Bible, about what things were like in those days. It started, it started in about the 50s with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which suddenly answered almost all critics about how reliable the Bible is. I'll give you an example. The only full copy of the book of Isaiah that we had dated around the 1400s. All right? The Dead Sea Scrolls had a full, uh, complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And so what people said is, oh, the book of Isaiah was, it was written way later. It's not really Isaiah the prophet. It's not trustworthy. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found written approximately 200 B.C., a full copy of the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah from 200 B.C. and the book of Isaiah from 1400 A.D. were almost in perfect sync. A few little misspelled words. Otherwise, they were exactly the same, which showed us something. It showed us, and many other discoveries just like that, showed us something. The Bible we have is reliable. It is trustworthy. I've talked about this a number of times. We have so many ways of showing that these are historical books that are accurate. Now, that doesn't mean errors can't creep in. doesn't mean, because these things are copied, doesn't mean a copyist can't misspell a word by accident. I mean, how many times do you misspell words when you're writing them out? Right? They didn't have spell correct. So, we see, and, and of, of the places where people say, there's a mistake, there's a mistake, there's a mistake, over 95% of them are simple things like misspelled words, transcribed words that were, they flipped some, some letters, they wrote E-A instead of A-E, different things like that, very simple things. There are only two passages in the Bible that have significant concern, and this is one of them, and this is one of them. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, didn't start showing up in Bibles until hundreds of years after the death of Christ. And so, for many scholars, and, and here's the thing, if we're going to be people of the truth, we've got to take the truth whether we think it's a great thing or we think it's not a great thing. So, for many scholars, they think this was added by scribes. But, let me say this, for most scholars also, they believe this is a true historical event that happened. And here's why. You know, and these are some of these discoveries we're making. Not long after the death of Christ, a man named Papias wrote a sermon where he referred to the time when Jesus and the woman 
caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. And he referred to that. And here's the key. He referred to that like everyone knew what he was talking about. This wasn't some weird, obscure thing. This was something that everyone knew about. And then as time goes on, we see a number of the church fathers who talk about this event, and they talk about it like we all know about this. And I think probably what may have happened is after three or 400 years, people started going, not everybody knows about this. Let's just stick it in. So if you'd like to talk about this more, I would be happy to talk to you about it. I believe this is a true event that happened in the life of Christ. I, have, I believe we have an accurate rendering of the event that happened in the life of Christ. So I believe we can look at it and study it because it teaches us about Jesus Christ. There's no new doctrine here. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing huge. It just teaches us what we knew about him. So we have a high, an account with a high degree of certainty that it did happen. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this and we're going to learn from it because I believe it's true. Here we go. So first of all, I want you to remember, they're planning, we just read it, they're planning to kill Jesus. They're very upset with Jesus. And they come up with a trap. They come up with a trap. They want to trap him. They want to trap him in a way that makes their job easier in getting rid of him. All right? And so, if you remember what's happened previously, Jesus went by a pool of water in the city of Jerusalem and he healed a lame man. And he healed that man on the Sabbath. And the, and the Pharisees went nuts. You don't do that on the Sabbath. That's against our laws. And Jesus counteracts him. He says, you got the law wrong. You're more concerned about your interpretation of the law than you are the life of a person. He says, you've got it all wrong. You're more concerned about how you interpret the law than you are having compassion on a man who is made in the image of God or in a woman who is made in the image of God. And you didn't even care that he'd been healed. You only worried that your interpretation of the law had been broken. It's interesting. They found a way to condemn a miracle of God as a sin. And these are the religious leaders. This is a problem with religious leaders. And I'm standing here as kind of, I don't think of myself quite that way, kind of a religious leader. And the problem is people get positions of power, they get positions of authority, they get positions where there's lots of money, And they begin to cut corners to keep it. And they invent ways to make sure they stay in power, in authority, in the money. That's a very dangerous place to be because then you end up like the Pharisees condemning a miracle of God as sin. That's a horrific thing when you think about it. And so... They realize now that Jesus is popular, and they can't just kill him. So they're going to engineer a situation that they are hoping will turn people against him. So I want you to see the trap. And I can't help it, whenever I hear it's a trap, I think of Admiral Akbar, right? Here we go. It's a trap. <laughs> However he talks, right? 
That's that's. Uh, let's get away from that, okay? Because you're just going to keep staring at Admiral Akbar and go, oh, oh, yes. And I know what you know that is in the background. All right. So they have this trap. They've come up with it. And let's just set it right here in this in, in verse two. He says, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. Jesus went to the temple courts. He's been doing that right along. He went to the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. All right. That was a typical thing that people in authority did. They sat down to teach. And everybody just crowded in and listened. And sometimes they would sit on a high spot, maybe on a wall or on something, so that people could hear them. So this is what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees knew he'd be doing that. This is what he's been doing regularly. All right? And so, verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. All right? So, here we go. We have this trap. There's only two answers. One is stone her. One is don't stone her. See, they figured, we've got him this time. We've got him. What can he say? It's one of those things that's so hard to to wiggle out of. It's like if somebody said, have you stopped stealing from your boss yet? Yeah, what do you do? Either answer condemns you, right? Taking first church pens is not stealing. Just want to reassure a couple of people because invariably I've had times where I've gone to people's house, you know, and we're doing something, maybe writing something, and they go here, and I go, oh, it's a first church pen. I'm really going to take it back. I'm really, and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I'm trying to say, I mean, I don't want to take them. It's okay. A couple of years ago, I went to Einstein's on the campus and, and, and bought a coffee. I, I didn't have any money, so I paid my credit card, and she handed me a First Church Ministries pin to sign my bill with. And I'm like, yes, yes, we're infiltrating the den of evil. <laughs> no, 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 not, not, not seeing you. Just Starbucks, that's all I'm thinking. No, not even that. Um, so, yes, you can take them. We have new red ones, so you might want to bring your green ones back and replace them with red ones. You can do that. So, here's the trap. I don't know, I don't know what. It was sitting there, and my, you know, little rabbit brain gets going. All right. Don't stoner or stoner. That's all you got, right? If he says stoner, and here's what they're thinking. If he says stone her, you know, see, they know he showed compassion to that lame man on the Sabbath. And he criticized their interpretation of Sabbath law. And people loved it. People loved it. So he, he healed this man on the Sabbath. He criticized them when he did it. And so now what they're doing is, well, we got the perfect one now because this is not our interpretation of the law. We're just going to lay out the law. We're just going to lay out the law. This is what the law says. The law says stoner, right? And so if he says the law's right, stoner, they're going to go to the people. Here's your man of compassion. Here's your man of compassion. He authorized, because they've put him in the point, he's, they've put him in the place of being the judge. And if he says stoner, he is responsible for the death of this woman. Now, there's another side to this too, and that is this. Rome is in charge. Rome took away the right of the Jews to execute someone based on religious beliefs. So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, they just go to the Roman authorities and say, this guy broke your law, 
executed a woman. He's guilty under Roman law. He needs to be executed. That way they can pawn off killing Jesus to the Romans. Kind of like what they do later, right? And so, because this is punishable by death, according to Roman law. I want to just tell you this really, if you, if you, if you go to our website, sometimes you see um, we have these little shorts where I just take five to eight minutes to talk about biblical things that I think are kind of key. And one of them is about Shiloh. There's a, there's a passage in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, in De- Deuteronomy, where it says, when Shiloh is gone, that's when we look for the Messiah, basically. That's what it's saying. And Shiloh was the rule of law, the ability to, to condemn someone to death. And they had just recently lost that ability. And so we have this Old Testament prophecy that says, when this happened, look for the Messiah. Look for the Messiah. Just cool. I like it. So, so if he says stoner, they got him two ways. He's not, he's, he's, he's not a man of compassion. Secondly, the Romans will have to do something to him. If he says don't stone her, then they're simply going to say, look, he doesn't obey the law. He doesn't obey the law. So obviously he's a devil. He's an unbeliever. To follow him is to deny God's law. That'll be the logic, and that will be a logic that would work. If you, if you follow him, you're denying God's law because he is a denier of the law. Right? So we see the trap. We see what is it. I just said that. Now, what does the law say? I mean, let's look at that for a moment because Deuteronomy and Leviticus talk about this, and the laws are very strict because uh, for... Condemning someone for adultery was incredibly rare. It's not that adultery was incredibly rare. It seems to have been rampant in those times. But condemning someone for adultery was incredibly rare because it's such a strict punishment, it's incredibly rare. Most of the time, most of the time, money was exchanged. Compensation was given. And that's because in the Old Testament, this is set forward as, as a way of, of doing law, is this idea, you know, when they say eye for an eye, they're not saying if he accidentally pokes out your eye, you go and poke his eye out on purpose. No, he gives you what you would estimate, a court would estimate, is the worth of an eye. And, and our law does this, too. People pay uh, compensatory damages based on the amount of pain or hurt they've caused you to compensate. And this is, this is what was going on back then. So oftentimes, uh, there was some sort of an agreement that would come to, money would be exchanged, land would be given, or animals or something like that as payment to, uh, to, to compensate. But see, they're pressing, for, they're pressing for the ultimate penalty, which is incredibly rare. Now, God knew capital punishment could easily be abused, so God sent up stringent, very stringent standards. First of all, and this is where already they've missed up. There has to be a trial. They're trying to make Jesus the judge and say this is the trial. But generally, these trials were, were in private, not in public. The big thing is you had to catch the person in the act. All right? Seeing the woman enter another man's house was not enough. Seeing them come out of a private room together was not enough. Seeing them both laying on the bed was not enough. All right? You know, like, like, like bicycling is a solo sport. This is a team sport, right? You, you, it has to be two people, and they have to be in the act. That's why it's very, it's very careful here. They said very carefully, we caught her, not in a, we caught her in the act. We caught her in the act of adultery, all right? And so they're saying to Jesus, she fulfills the standards. She was caught in the act. 
And in verse 5, they're going to kind of... Uh, they're going to kind of show their hand a little bit here. And I want you to see this. In verse 5, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Right? Now they've misrepresented Scripture. Because in the law of Moses, it says, stone the man and the woman. And in this, they feminize it. They use a feminine phrasing to just point to the woman. Why? See, now we know it's a trap. Now, Jesus probably knew from the get-go, but now we know it's a trap. Because where's the man? They caught him in the act. Where's the man? You, you didn't bring him. You didn't bring him. Why? They just wanted her. And that shows us she was set up. They just wanted her. They had to make something like this happen when they knew Jesus would be in the temple teaching, so then they could drag her there and bring her right before Jesus. So more than likely, uh, this woman is a prostitute. That's probably what has happened. And, and at the end, the last uh, verse, in verse 11, it, it, it kind of it shows us that, where he says, stop, doing your li- stop living your life of sin. He says, this, it's the idea of an ongoing thing. Right? So they engineered this. And then... And, that, and the guy had to be in on it. And so to make sure he doesn't get punished, they let him go, and they just drag the woman because they don't care about her. And that's the way life was in those days. Women just were not, they were second-class citizens. And so it didn't bother them to think that she might die. But they had to have someone on the inside to make it happen, and so they let him go. So it's a setup. How else can you catch two people in the act when you know Jesus is nearby and available? So she was lured into this situation. And so the trap is, the trap is obvious. They're manipulating Scripture. They've, they've violated the part of Scripture that says the man is liable too. And they have committed a host of sins, setting up an adulterous liaison, making that happen. Lying in wait and watching it. Lying about the circumstances. And then pretending they were innocent bystanders. And so the, 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 the list of the, of the law being broken is just piling up on them. And so Jesus now is on the horn of a dilemma here, between, in a sense, between morality and compassion. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem we deal with today. If you only show compassion, then you relativize Morality. Relativize morality. If you're strictly, strictly moral, then you crush people with impossible standards. And if you try to compromise between the two, kind of meet halfway, some of one and some of the other, well, then your morality and your compassion tends to change with whatever the circumstances are. And that is open to abuse. You become selective. Your compassion becomes selective. Don't we do that? We are selective in our compassion. We see certain people and we have no compassion for them. And we see others, maybe people that are closer to us, that we care more about and our heart breaks for them. Years ago, well, every year, we're involved with the port ministry, which is a ministry to the homeless uh, on the peninsula. 
And uh, during the winter months, uh, the homeless are taken in, they're given showers, they're fed, uh, doctors come once a week, um, counselors come once a week to try to help them, housing advocates come once a week during the week at each place to help them find a place to live, possibly to get off the streets. We feed them a, a, a meal, a hot, nutritious meal. In the morning, we feed them breakfast, and, and, and then, then they leave for the day. They can come back the next night. Each, all the churches that are involved either staff it or use their facilities um, from November through uh, March, I think it is. And so we, had, we, we do that. We get involved in that. We're going to twice this year, we're going to feed them and, and do all that. And uh, I had somebody come to me and say, you know, but they've done it to themselves. I have a business. They come by all the time. They're always begging for stuff. And, always, and they just, I keep saying, get a job. You've done this to yourself. And I said, you know what? I understand if that's part of it. I don't think that's all of it. But I understand that's part of it. But I said, think how tragic it is that a person, a human being, created in the image of God is having to stoop so low to do things like that to try to get something to eat. And he says, yeah, but they, I know drugs are involved. I know alcohol is involved. I know that stuff is involved. I know mental illness is involved. But I said, at the very core, for every one of us, we have to understand these people are created in the image of God, and they deserve a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of love, a certain amount of compassion on that basis alone, whether you know them or not, whether you're close to them or not. This is key for us, and this is where the Pharisees were lacking. And I'm telling you, this is where we can be lacking sometimes. Compassion becomes selective. We try to find that, that, that middle ground. It can be very hard. It all depends on, you know, when it becomes selective, and it all depends on who's doing the selecting, right? It's like the old story of some kids at a playground, and somebody does something, and a kid goes, that's not fair. And the biggest kid stands up and says, says who? Who says it's not fair? I'm the biggest kid. I say it's fair. And that's what happens when we, we, when we lose our moorings. And Jesus here is going to deal with this trap. But I want, to, I want you to see how he does it. First of all, Jesus upsets the elite. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And so now we have these particulars of this story. We're all one of these people in this story to, to one degree or another. We have this woman caught in adultery. She's guilty and she's caught and many of you can relate to that. You may be at a point right now where there's something that you've done and, you're, you're in the, and, and if, you're, if you aren't, just remember a time where you did something you knew was wrong and you got caught and that, that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of hate, self-hatred. There's the man she committed adultery with. He has not been caught, but he is still guilty. And for many, you might be like this. You've been doing some things and you've been getting away with it but you know you're guilty. We have the leaders here. They're guilty. 
They're guilty of numerous things in other ways. They're guilty of becoming judges over a person while they themselves are deserving of judgment. We have these categories of people. I taught this one time, and somebody said, hey, you forgot somebody. I said, who? He said, Jesus. You forgot Jesus. I said, okay, I'm sorry, but you're not like Jesus. (laughs) I said, if you're reading your Bible and you're going, wow, Jesus reminds me of me, you're reading it wrong. You just got it wrong. I'm telling you, you got it wrong. So we, have, so, so we see this trap, and they, they are sure they have him. You know, some of this is, you know, in, in, as we go through the Bible, different, different things, it's trying to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the people. Put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't answer right away. They're like, yeah, yeah boy, or whatever, you know, they did. He's, they're, they're excited because they got him. They got him. Whichever way he turns, they got him, and they know it. They're so excited. And they're pressing him. You know, it says there, they kept questioning him. They're like, come on, Jesus, come on. This isn't that hard. What does the law say? This isn't that tough. Make a decision. And so they're pushing him because they feel like, and they feel like they have him. You know, you're not going to dodge this one, Jesus. We got you. They're finally going to get rid of the man who has been threatening their position in society. Threatening what they value the most, their authority, their power, and money. You know, it's like in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan is sacrificed in place of Edmund, if you've read that. Just a beautiful story. And the witch and her minions are... As soon as I say minions... Darn, I shouldn't have said minions. It just makes me think of those guys. Wanna. So the witch and her cohorts are excited, and they're dancing and partying because they've killed, and they forgot the deeper magic. You remember that? They're so excited, and suddenly it all turns to ashes for them. The religious leaders think they have a foolproof trap, and Jesus answers them in verse 7. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, suddenly he's forced them to suddenly be introspective and to examine their actions. Because I don't believe what he's saying is, if you're sinless, you can cast. No, that wouldn't have worked with them. No Jew thinks they're sinless. They don't think they're sinless. They just divide into categories of sinfulness. The Pharisees are at the top. They call themselves righteous. They're the righteous ones. And then, and then there's the regular people. And, and in the last chapter, we saw what they think of the regular people, right? Those fools believe in Jesus. Those idiots believe in Jesus. They thought of the, that's what they think of the regular people. They're below us. They're contemptible, right? And then there's the really bad people. The people oftentimes, the, you know, the, in Scripture you'll read the sinners, like the sinners and the tax collectors, and adulterers. Now that's at the bottom. Those are the horrible people, according to them. And he's saying to them, if you're sinless in this incident, throw a stone. Throw a stone. You know, do you see, can you imagine? I'm just thinking. He says, I know she is without sin. I know she is not without sin. I should say that. Why didn't I just say, I know she's guilty. What about you? What about you? Are you without sin? And you can imagine 
I, I feel it's just like they suddenly said, ah, he didn't answer. Not like they wanted. It's like he's saying, what about the law showing, about showing partiality and justice? From the beginning to the end of the Bible, God talks about not showing partiality in justice. Partial to the rich, partial to the poor, partial to, to men, partial, no partiality, over and over. And he says, that's what you've done. You didn't bring the man. What about lying? You're all involved in that, he's telling them. What about setting up the act of adultery? Making it happen. That makes you complicit and guilty. So Jesus is basically saying, if we're going to talk about the law of Moses, you guys want to talk about the law of Moses? Let's talk about the law of Moses. You're disqualified according to the law of Moses as witnesses and as executioners. He's saying, I don't deny the law of Moses. You are. You're the ones denying the law of Moses. And he turns their trap on them. They wouldn't admit their sin, and so he confronts them. I want to tell you something. When we're not willing to admit our sin, Jesus confronts us with it. He brings it to us. He shows it to us. If you won't name your sin, Jesus will. And so we see the trap. We see that Jesus upsets the elite. And now we see Jesus comforts the hurting. And I want to show you a passage. I love this passage. Um, there's a passage in Isaiah. There's a whole bunch about how, what, what will the Messiah be like when he comes? How do you recognize him? How do you recognize the Messiah? And here's one from Isaiah 42. How do you recognize the Messiah? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does that mean? A bruised reed. It's just like a blade of grass. Say you're walking along, you know, you're walking along, and you just step, you're stepping on grass. And so what happens? A blade of grass gets bent over and just stays there because you cracked it, in a sense. You, you, you broke it, you've, and you've bruised it. And it says, the most insignificant Jesus is, is interested in. Who cares? Who cares about a blade of grass? And Jesus says, when it comes to people, I do. I do. It says a smoldering wick will not be quenched. What is that? I don't know if you've ever, you know, uh, maybe you did this when you were kids. We thought we were so brave when we were kids. We tried to put out candles with our fingers, right? And we, finally, I'd lick my fingers really good, get them all wet, and then do it. And then the candle would smoke for just a little bit. Why? Because it's not 100% out, right? It's not 100% out. It's like Princess Bride. He wasn't 100% dead. He was mostly dead. All right, so that wick is not 100% out, it's mostly out. And it says Jesus won't quench, he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. What is that telling us? It's showing us he cares for the lowly. He cares for the brokenhearted. He cares for the least of these. However any particular society sees the least of these, he cares for them. He comforts the hurting an insignificant to us blade of grass will be treated tenderly. A smoldering wick, barely a spark, barely any life let it, will not be quenched and snuffed out. And this shows an affinity to those that no one cares about, those that society considers the low, lowest, the dregs of society. Because if we're being honest, that's what this woman is. 
That's what she is. She's not just an adulterer. It's pretty clear she's a prostitute. She's the lowest of the low in that society, right down there with <laughs> tax collectors, traitors to their nation and to their religion. Now, we try to put ourselves in people's place. So let's get in her place for a second. Dragged out of that bed. Barely covered, if covered at all. No private trial. She's paraded to the temple that is crowded with throngs of people. Dragged in there to be used as a pawn and then be thrown aside. Try to imagine her horror and her humiliation. Imagine her abject fear. Because, you know, we, we talk about this so many times. No little girl grows up saying, that's what I want to do. I want to be used by men, treated horribly, like a thing. Nobody, nobody dreams of that. Things happen. Stuff happens. Maybe things that she's responsible for, and maybe things she's not responsible for. And she's been put into this situation. She's, she's there, and she does something and she knows deep inside it's wrong. She knows deep. I, uh, there's a couple organizations that I've supported in the past that work, work with women who are uh, trafficked. And, uh, and they were saying, you know, sometimes you see something on TV, sometimes you see something about women's rights or different things like that, and some woman will get up and, and say, I'm a prostitute, you know, and I'm, I'm totally, I, I love it, I'm glad I do it, blah, blah, blah. And, and they were just saying, you know what? That's a lie. One of these guys is with international, uh, the International Justice Mission, and he just said, I've interviewed hundreds of women. None, not one, ever said, yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah, it was a great life. Yeah, I'm for it. None of them. None of them. And so she's being used. Think of a time when you were utterly humiliated, that feeling of total worthlessness. It's not what she wanted. It's not what she envisioned for herself. And now these vicious and uncaring men have manipulated her, and she finds herself alone in a crowd and afraid. And look how Jesus deals with her. She is a, she is a bruised reed. She is a smoldering wick. There's m not much life there. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I just want to remember, remind you, he says woman. And that is not a, uh, not, that, that Jesus used that with his mother a number of times. We looked at that. It could be a very endearing term. It could be a term of recognition. I see you. I recognize you. You know, you're not a thing. You're not an it. You're not something to be tossed aside. You're a woman. You have, you have worth. And the older, oldest would be the first to throw. That was the Jewish tradition, that the older, older men would throw the first stone. Um, they, they carried honor, and so even that was considered in some weird way. An honor. But also, and I can say this because I'm older, 
I don't know if you noticed, but um, when you get older, you become more and more aware of your shortcomings. You, you recognize mistakes, oftentimes more and more in your life when you didn't realize what they were when you were younger. And I, and I can imagine these men standing there, maybe one thought, all of a sudden it dawned, you know, Jesus said, think about this. What have you done? And I can imagine one of the old men going, what, what have I done? What have I done? In the name of God, I've done something horrible. And he starts walking away. And then it just continues, each one confronted with their sin because Jesus confronts people with their sins, slowly leaving. And then he turns to him, her, and says, where are your accusers? Right? No one stayed to condemn. Now, she's not actually out of the woods because the one person who actually had the legitimate moral authority to throw a stone was still there, was still there with her, standing. And so he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Now, that word sir is the word kurios in the Greek, kurios in the Greek. It is overwhelmingly translated as Lord hundreds and hundreds of times. It is secondly overwhelmingly translated as Master. It is only a few times translated Sir. I'm not sure why they went for Sir on this situation because I think she's saying no one, Lord, because she realizes something. Maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is Lord is what Paul says there. No one can say that apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And so I think something is happening here. Spiritually, she recognizes something. She went from terror and fear to acceptance and love. And notice Jesus does not condemn her, but he doesn't say she's not guilty. She's guilty, but he says, I don't condemn you. How can he say that? How can he say that? I think some of this points to the fact that he knows he will be condemned. He tells her, as your Lord, I'm telling you to turn and leave this life of sin. This lifestyle is killing you. It's killing your soul. Stop. And so we have this story. It's a true story. I really believe that. It's a true story. I think, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, ways that we, we can see that. But so what? Right? So what, what about us? What do we do? What do we do with this? And I want to give you a few ideas. First, judge yourself before you judge others. When you find yourself judging others, stop and say, what is going on here? Why am I doing this? What makes me think I'm qualified in this situation? Because they were there to judge that woman. And Jesus said, okay, since we're judging, let's start with you. People who, who, are, who think they are superior excel in judging and in mocking and in belittling. So I'm telling you, put your rock down. Think, why am I doing this? Why am I writing this? Why am I watching this? Why am I saying this? Learn to understand your motivations. Secondly, grace always comes with a challenge. Just like with this woman, this is real love. Because when you really love someone, you act if they're destroying themselves. You don't just sit by and let it happen. I mean, it's like parents. You know, we all know this. You, you, 
you don't want to create too much pressure. You don't want your kids to think that grades are the end all and be all of everything. But you do want your kids to do well because you know they're capable of doing well. And if you have a kid who's absolutely tanking in their grades, like they just aren't even trying, it tells you something's wrong. I need to take action. If you love them, you will. Because you, you realize this tanking can lead to bad habits in the future. You realize my child's not a dummy. You realize I need to intervene. I need to do something. I need to say something. Something needs to be done. Or do you just say this? Do you just say, okay, I'm going to be graceful and just let that slide? I want to tell you that's not grace. That's not love. Remember we talked about this? The opposite of love is indifference. It's not hate. It's indifference. And true love intercedes. True love confronts. Third thing. I just want to say, are you bruised? He will not break you. He's the healer. You need to go to him. No blame shifting. You know, he didn't, he, he, he didn't let her shift blame. No blame shifting. Admit your sin. James teaches us, we talked about this when we studied the book of James. James teaches us that it's our heart. It's in our heart where we're tempted to sin, not our circumstances. Recognize that he is Lord, not you. Yield to him, but don't beat yourself up. You don't work on your forgiveness. You work out of your forgiveness. That's why he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, he didn't say, stop sinning and I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you. Stop sinning. We work out of our forgiveness. We don't work for forgiveness. That's very key for us. Fourth, very simple. It always comes down to you and Jesus, so get to know him better. It ultimately ended with just her and Jesus. It's going to always come down to you and Jesus. There's going to be times in your life where no one else can be there for you. It's just you and Jesus. So get to know him better. And finally, I want you to see Jesus lifts your condemnation. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Your sin, your shame has been taken care of. And if you find yourself just, just um, swimming and, 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 and immersed in your sin or your shame, you, you haven't got this straight. Your shame is gone. Your sin is gone. These are just five things we can pull out of this. There's many more. But I do want to say this. If you have questions, doubts, struggles, come see me. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. I can't promise you that I know the answer to your questions. I can't promise you that I can answer everything you have to say, but I will promise you this. I will find it, or I'll find someone who can help you because this is so important. If you're feeling like God is speaking to you, don't wait. Don't wait. Act on it. Let someone know. Let someone who, who know who will pray for you or talk with you. Let me know, anyone. Just let somebody know that you know, loves you, cares for you, and will help you through this. Because sometimes God is speaking and He wants us. He wants us to move. He wants us to act. He doesn't want us to wait. So if He is, I encourage you, do that. Father, we thank You. 
for the way you work. We thank you for the story of Jesus and the way he acted with this woman, the way he showed perfectly a picture of you, God. So, Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, we would not be condemners, we would not be haters, we would be people who, who love, knowing full well, Lord, that sometimes love means intercession, sometimes love means confrontation. But help us to love that hard to others in our lives. And Lord, help us to have eyes that see the least of these in this world and the desire, the willingness, the courage to act when we do. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can do that on the basis of what you have done for us through Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.